Hello, Harvest. You know, here's the great thing about that greeting. By the way, I'm Pastor Michael. Uh, to distinguish you from the other Pastor Mike, to distinguish me from the other Pastor Mike. But here's the great thing about that greeting. Hello, Harvest. No matter where I go, whether I'm at PVC, where I am every weekend, or go to Indiana campus, or go to the Freeport campus on Sunday night, or I'm here, it's Harvest. We are one church in four locations, and isn't that a great thing? I agree with Rodney. I want to reiterate the fact that Uh, The park service is a highlight for me. It's great to see people that I don't get to see on a normal basis and worship with them. And so some of you, you may be pushed out of your comfort zone because you're gonna be sitting with people and near people who you think, do they go to harvest? Well, you know what? They may or may not because there's a bunch of people that come from the community too. So go out of your comfort zone and say hi to somebody at the park service. Here, I'll I'll do one thing better. Invite somebody to the park service. Invite somebody who you know doesn't come to harvest and make sure that at least you're sitting by someone who doesn't come to harvest that you know. So invite somebody. The other thing I want to remind us of, we have, we have so much going on in the life of our church. Why is that? Does harvest just like to keep us busy? No. There are churches out there that just want to keep us busy. But here's the reality. The longer we are Christians, the less and less connection we have with the unbelieving world. And what good are you then? You're not. What good is salt unless you use it? What good is light unless you shine it in darkness? And so I'm grateful for a church that continues to want to give us touch points out into our community because our natural tendency is to circle the wagons and get in the holy huddle. Get out of here. Not now. But get out of here. In about an hour, I'm gonna say it again. Get out of here. Go. And, and serve the world that God's put you in. Be that light, be that salt. Well, enough of that. Let's open your Bibles, if you have them, to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, conveniently, it will pop up on the screen behind me. Uh, we are in the Ten Commandments, and you, if you haven't gotten the perspective yet, I hope you do as we move through the Ten Commandments. We are at the Seventh Commandment, that God is concerned about our most important relationships, isn't he? He's concerned about our relationships first and foremost to him. And where do we get, where do we get that in the commandments? Commandments one through four, right? And then he's concerned about our relationships with our families and our neighbors in the rest of the commandments. Is it, is, is it any wonder that when the Pharisees came to Jesus to try to trip him up, they said, give us a summary of the commandments. And what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon, all, upon these two hang all ten. Hang all the law and the prophets. If, if you concentrate in the two, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, you will fulfill the commandments. But even doing the two, we struggle, don't we? We fail every single day. But let's not forget the context in which the commandments were given to the people of Israel. What was their state? What was their condition? Were they still in captivity? No, they were redeemed. The very first statement in Exodus 20 is, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. He wasn't giving the Israelites the Ten Commandments so that they might know how to be his people. He was giving them the commandments because they already were his people and he was saying, this is how you live as my people. 
And that's a question that every Christian, I think, needs to ask all the time. If you look at the New Testament writers, they always start with big theological ideas and big theological discussions, but then they reduce it down to what? This is how you should live. This is how you should interact with one another. And, and the Ten Commandments are no different. Every Christian should ask themselves this question, now that I'm a Christian, how shall I live? How am I to live as a follower of Christ in this world? How am I to live as a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ in this world that is not following him? Why is that important? Why is it relevant for us to be reviewing the Ten Commandments and applying them to our lives? I wish we had community groups sometimes in the summer because I would love to sit as a fly in the wall in community groups hearing them discuss these commandments and how to apply them. These are not archaic, old, dead rules because God just wants to be the cosmic killjoy. They bring us life, not eternal life, because remember, he's given them to redeemed people. But it is important that we understand how to live as his redeemed people in a fallen world. We are set apart, aren't we? We are scripturally a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. What? so we might declare his praise. So it behooves us, I think, to think through these commandments from a perspective, from the same perspective that God had for the Israelites. As his redeemed people, how should we live? But the reality, sin has twisted our logic, hasn't it? And by the way, if you opened your Bibles, I didn't read the command, and it's very simple. You shall not commit adultery. That's the commandment we're at. Sin has so twisted our logic, though, that the following viewpoint has become acceptable, I think, even in the church, and I quote, my personal life is between me and God and you have nothing to do with it. How many of you have heard yourself say that? When something difficult has been shared from the pulpit or in a Bible study or in a one-on-one interaction with a pastor or an elder, or someone in authority? How many, how many of you have thought those words, this is my life, this is my personal life, get out? What's, what, is, what does the Bible have to say about that? Here's what the scripture says. God has put claims on our lives, hasn't he? He's put a claim on all of our lives if we are his children. The Bible says you are not your own, you are bought with a price. What was the price? A few little marbles and some jacks? The price was his son. You've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You are his. You are not your own. You cannot say, on this part of my life, Lord, you you don't have anything to say, but the rest you do. And and typically, the two areas that that we say God can't say anything about is money and sex. Stay out of that area, Lord. Stay out of my pocket. Stay out of my bedroom. But the Bible is clear. God has the right to dictate the bounds and nature of our sexuality both inside and outside the bedroom. In fact, I'm gonna go so far as to say that our behavior in this area is an important gauge on our spiritual health and maturity. You don't have to look far to see the relevance of God speaking about this issue in his moral law, do you? The danger is, though, here's the danger, that we as the church look out at the world and say, if they would just follow God's commands, 
If those unbelievers out there would just stop living with each other, if they they just stop having sex outside of marriage, they just bring prayer back into school, everything would be good. Who, who was the Bible written to? Not unbelievers. These words are for the church. These words are for God's redeemed people. And we need to get these things straight in our own lives first before we go looking to take the log out of our neighbor's eyes. We can't even get these straight. There are are young men and women who I have talked to over and over and over again who don't find it inconsistent to live together with somebody and profess to be a Christian, and they're not married. I, I, I find it over and over again when I talk to even adults who decide they're not happy anymore, and so they need to go find happiness somewhere else, and they divorce. The, you might say, wait a minute, Pastor, we're woke. We're, we're 21st century uh, sexually released people. We don't need to hear this. No, well, you do need to hear this. I need to hear this. Because unfortunately, the, ch- the church has woefully imitated the world on this issue. You know, you know the divorce rate in the world is not much different than it is in the church. There are just as many uh, Christians uh, visiting counselors because of sexual sin as there are unbelievers. There's a ministry in Colorado that specifically reaches out to ministers. 80% of their clients are ministers who struggle with sexuality and pornography. This is a relevant issue. It's an issue that we as a church as the body of Christ, need to clean house with in ourselves because we cannot represent God when our lives in this area are torn apart. We can't even come to the table and have conversations about them if our lives in this area aren't where they need to be. So what is God telling us in this command? What is adultery and what are the perils of adultery? If I were to give you just a really nice, clean definition of it, adultery in the strict sense of the word is sexual relationships between a married man and a woman who is not his wife or a married woman and a man who is not her husband. In other words, two people involved are not married to each other and at least one of them is married to someone else. That's the very strict, very Fairly narrow definition, but is that as far as it goes? Is that as simple and straightforward as it gets? Because it is. If your answer is yes, then you know what? Let's have the worship team come, up, come on up and just close out the service and go home. We've got it licked. But I think Jesus raises the bar, doesn't he? How does Jesus raise the bar? None of us really escape. Even women Let me ask you a few questions before I read what Jesus says. Is it only in committing the act that we miss the mark? Is it only in having a relationship with a woman or a man who's not our spouse that we disobey this commandment? What would Jesus say? Here's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter five, verse 28, it says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Guilty. <laughs> How many of you are going to join me? Guilty. Thank you for raising your hands and not leaving me alone up here. Reality is, is we're guilty. It, you, th- there have been a number of books uh, written over the years, Every Man's Battle. It is every man's battle to a certain degree or another. You may not struggle with it a lot. You may have woeful struggles with it and feel like you fail every single day, but it is every man's battle. But it's not just every man's battle. Women battle it too. Exodus is not the only place in scripture that God deals with our sexuality, especially the issue of adultery. I I have really been enjoying reading the Proverbs and I think to myself, why didn't I find the Proverbs earlier in my life? I could have saved myself so much grief. But I I wanna caution you with this. Proverbs, unfortunately, we as God's people look at the Proverbs sometimes as promises, And one promise that I often think of is train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old he won't depart from it. Oh Lord, thank you. All my kids are gonna be saved. Is that a promise or is it a principle? It's a principle. There are no guarantees in Proverbs. There are no promises in Proverbs. They're principles. They're principles to live by and if you live by them, nine times out of 10, you're gonna experience the success that the writer of Proverbs, mostly Solomon, has indicated. But there's, there's always gonna be an exception to the rule because we live in a fallen world. <laughs> but Proverbs is full of so much stuff. So we're gonna look at the perils first, and there are three of them. So Proverbs chapter five, verses four through six. And I love how Proverbs is set up. It's Solomon who is, who is talking to his kids about life and the lessons he's learned And I wish I, again, as a father, I wish I had found these earlier and sat down and spent more time with my son in these Proverbs because they would set him up. They would set all of us up. Again, not promises, principles, but they would set us up for success if we lived them. It says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Be warned, Christian. Be warned, son or daughter of God. Proverbs chapter six, verse 32, but a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so, does what? Destroys himself. That's your first map fill-in. Destruction. Adultery leads to destruction. Proverbs 7, 22 to 23, all at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. Like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. (laughs) danger, danger, danger. Run as fast as you can from this woman, Solomon says. Don't even follow her. 
You know, you can always count on Dateline NBC with Lester Holt when he is dealing with a murder that there was a love triangle involved. It always comes back to that, doesn't it? Mysterious murder on the beach, mysterious murder on the boat, on the cruise ship, mysterious murder in suburbia America. Ooh, let's trace these things and what happens. We have a a man who has mysteriously gotten involved with another woman who becomes jealous that he still is with his wife and they off the wife. Danger, danger, run. Questions often arise though sometimes in these hidden sins and they are hidden sins. They're they're sometimes respectable sins in the church. We don't talk about them. Who is it going to hurt who, who, who is this really going to hurt? And we say that about pornography too. Nobody knows. Now I, I'm in the hidden room. I'm in my basement. I'm in the attic. Nobody knows. Who's going to hurt? Well, here's the answer. Everyone. It's going to hurt everyone. The man and the woman who have the affair, the spouse, their children, their friends, their business associates, their neighbors, Everyone. Talk to anyone who has been involved in adultery. They thought they could get away with it. They thought they could manipulate the circumstance and the situation so that nobody knew. In corporate America, many persons are away from home for great lengths of time on business. They live most of their lives in hotel rooms and rental cars, airports, American Express cards, restaurants, boardrooms, and the like. Maybe there are some of you sitting here that do that on a regular basis. The business may be done from nine to five and then what is that man or woman confronted with? Loneliness. Being alone. Nobody's gonna know that I'm watching suspect movies on TV in my hotel room. Nobody, nobody knows that I'm, that I'm gonna go to this massage parlor. Nobody knows. Back home, wives are alone, aren't they? Their weeks may be filled with carting children off to school and to dance lessons and to baseball practice, but it doesn't eliminate the ache of loneliness. Relationships don't have to be separated by miles for them to be emotionally distant. Temptation can come to the spouse in the subdivision as easily as it arrives at the room of the corporate executive at the Marriott. Women might not struggle in the same way as men, but every one of you knows the pull of being pursued. Being pursued by that guy at work. Being talked to and being understood like your husband doesn't understand you. You know the intimacy of the gushy romantic comedy or the attraction of the sensual book. See, for women, the idea of emotional intimacy and sensuality can be a lot more tempting than a naked body. And that's just the way you were created. Men are kind of dolts like that. We don't get into the stories. You know what? And the women on, the, there are, there are uh, 30% of, statistically, 30% of women are now engaging on online porn. But you know what? It's not the videos, it's not the pictures, it's the chat rooms. It's the places where they can emotionally connect. 
It's the places where they feel like they can fantasize to have this husband or this life that they have been dreaming for. You are just as susceptible to that temptation as men are. And it's adulterous. God calls us to say no to those temptations, doesn't he? He calls us to honor the marriage vow which says to forsake all others. When was the last time you were at a wedding? And and did you hear the vows? Forsaking all others. But we dabble. We, We play with fire. God calls us to a different standard. See, you may not know it or not, but really God is about creating an alternate reality in the, in the household of faith. He's calling us to live differently. He's calling us to reconcile differently. He's calling us to fight differently. He's calling us to forgive differently than the world. He's calling us to do business differently than the world. And he's calling us to have relationships different than the world. The second peril is shame and regret. There's a line in Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way, that says, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Can you really have too few regrets to mention? Regrets just stew inside of us, don't they? Proverbs chapter five, verses eight through 12 says this, keep to a path far from her. And again, this is Solomon talking about the adulteress. Do not go near the door of her house lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, and here's the shame and regret, you will groan. Oh, I wish I'd done it differently. When your flesh and your body are spent, you will say how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. See, God rescues, God forgives. However, God, as a wise father, often allows us to reap what we sow. Why is it that the murderer on death row who may have a genuine faith conversion, some of which will look at that and say, you know what, I, God, I know God has forgiven me, but I have to deal with the consequences of murder. And God certainly has wiped away our sin, hasn't he? And, and the penalty for that sin. But we often, this side of heaven, have to continue to deal with the broken relationships, especially as it relates to this, this issue. The lack of trust. But you know what? Shame and regret would never develop if you didn't even play with the fire. Regret and shame are just a few consequences. Oftentimes, if we think about that shame and regret, regret, think about groaning. Is that a possible deterrent? Think about the relationships that are going to be affected. Everyone is affected. If the evil one can ensnare us in adultery, he can cause the loss of our most precious gifts, our marriage. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake in our marriages. And we will talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. Our families, our good influence, and most importantly, his good name. Because what's the first thing on the television or the news report when someone in the church falls? The name of, the name of God is the one that ultimately is smeared. The third peril is discipline. 
Proverbs 6, 27 through 28 asks some poignant questions. And, and they're kind of rhetorical. The, the answer is, is pretty obvious. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? The obvious answer is no. But just to make sure that we all understand, Solomon says this in verse 29, so is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Well, what form does that take in our lives? What form does that discipline and punishment take in our life? I think there's mental and emotional anguish. Our minds are tormented. Our our minds ought to be tormented with any sin. But here's the scary thing behind adultery is that nagging thing in the back of your brain is who's going to find out and when? Is my wife going to find out? Are my employers going to find out when they they start scanning the the receipts? Who's going to find out in church? You know, I'm not proud of this, but I was a promiscuous teenager. You know why? Because I thought that's where my identity was. And I went to a Pentecostal church and there was often speaking in tongues and interpretations and I walked into church every single day shaking in my boots. And I would repent every single Sunday and I'd say, oh Lord, please don't let anybody speak in tongues and please don't let anybody interpret it and say, Michael Harvey was sinning this weekend. And, and, and that wouldn't happen. And I would go, thank you, Jesus. I promise that I will, I will be more obedient this week. And then the next weekend hits. I, I had that hanging over my head for so long. For so long. The fear of walking into church and someone would rat me out. I hated that fear. I hated that fear. What about spiritual the person who commits adultery knows in his or her heart that God, God's command has been violated. Physical adultery may be against the spouse, but there's always a spiritual component of that adultery. And where do we find that in the scriptures? Let's look at David and how he dealt with his sin. What did he say? Against you, you only have I sinned. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Oh, okay, but against you, you only have I sinned. Well, wait, whoa. He put Uriah on the front lines and then had the guys back away. He not only committed adultery, he committed murder and then he lied about it. Boy, David had a lot of sins wrapped up in that one issue. But I I find the same, I find that to be true about adultery. What are you doing when you're having adultery with another man's wife or husband? You are stealing from them. You are coveting what's not yours. It goes much further than just the act, doesn't it? Like David, we need to own. And what does it mean to own our sin? We need to acknowledge and turn from our sin and be willing to take it to Jesus. He understands. He was tempted in every way like you and I were, yet was without sin. He understands. It is so much easier just to give in. It's so much easier just to click that button on the computer. It's so much easier to go to that video store or buy that magazine. It's so much easier. It's not easy to say, I I cannot do this. 
I have too much at stake. I have my family at stake. I have my wife at stake. I have my church at stake. And I have the glory of God at stake. That is hard. It's hard to say no. But we're, we're given the ability to say no. We are not victims of, of instinct. We have a choice. You can choose to say no as a follower of Jesus. That ability has been restored to you to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And we need to choose it. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I love C.S. Lewis quotes. C.S. Lewis quoted, and he was talking about desire. And he said, I have a fear that God finds our desires too weak because we are so easily satisfied with sex and drink and drugs when all along God has a holiday by the sea for us in a relationship with him. See, we settle for sex. We settle for money. And, 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 and God is so much better than that. Intimacy with him is so much better than that. God finds our desires too weak because we satisfy them on things that don't satisfy Well, what are the implications? What are the implications of the seventh commandment? And I, uh, these may be obvious, but I think it's worth uh, us hearing. Here's the first implication. God designed sexual expression to be between a man and a woman within the context of marriage only. So what do you mean? If I have sex outside of marriage, I'm guilty of breaking the seventh commandment? Yes. God designed the sexual relationship between a man and a woman only in the context of marriage. So if you find yourself not married to someone that you're having sex with, stop it. Get married. The Apostle Paul says that. If you can't control yourself, get married. Whatever you call intimacy between a man and a woman outside of marriage, between a man and a man, a woman or a woman, it's not biblical sexuality. The Bible has such a word for that. It's called sexual immorality. So why does it really matter? Why, why does it really matter what I do in the bedroom or what I do with my mind? Why does it really matter? Especially when it comes to marriage, and this is why I, I say every opportunity I have when doing marriage counseling or when doing a wedding, God has put so much pressure on marriage. It's a heavy burden and I every day feel inadequate. And, and by the way, that's how we should feel. Because until we feel inadequate, we cannot begin to operate in our marriages with the strength of God. But look at Ephesians chapter five, verses 31 and 32. And this is Paul talking about the relationship between a husband and wife, loving, submitting. Husbands loving your wife as Christ loved the church. That is the harder command, ladies, by the way. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. What's at stake? What's at stake when we can't 
keep our relationships with our spouses sexually within the bounds that God has given us, the image of God is at stake. Christ's love for his church is at stake. That's heavy. I can't do that. I, 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 I want to say, Lord, you didn't tell me that before I signed up to be your follower and you didn't tell me that before I got married. I want out. Well, there is no out clause. Why does God place boundaries around our sexuality? Listen to what John Piper says, and I quote, God created marriage to be a metaphor, a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. Sin has so confused that metaphor as to make it unintelligible. Our marriages aren't a whole lot different than the world. In many respects, and that's a travesty, isn't it? How, how, where is the world going to go to find out what it looks like for a husband to love his wife like Christ loved the church if they can't come to the church and see godly men and women interacting like they ought to biblically? Where is the world going to go? Playboy? All those other areas? Yeah, that's where they're going. And they're getting counterfeits. They're getting false intimacy. Secondly, marriage contains two essential ingredients. First, marriage contains a commitment to sexual faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 13 says, verse four says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And then secondly, marriage contains a commitment to li- to, for lifetime. Sexual faithfulness and Lifetime. And again, Matthew 19, and that verse is gonna, we're gonna re, I'm gonna read that verse in a second, but let me set the stage for you. Jesus is trying to be tripped up by the Pharisees who come to him and they say, for what reason ought a man be able to divorce his wife? See, back then they were divorcing their wives for burning toast, not literally, maybe burning the matzah. But they were divorcing their wives for trivial reasons. And, and what does Jesus say prior to this verse? He says, well, I know the law of Moses says that God allowed for divorce in the cases of marital unfaithfulness, but that's not where Jesus goes. Where does Jesus go to define for us what commitment for life looks like? He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And I hear that often in weddings too. Just before the pastor says, I now introduce to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. yada, yada, yada. He says, let not man separate. And that's not just speaking to people out there. That's also speaking to the man himself and the woman. Don't do anything that's gonna separate your relationship. This is a commitment for life, friends. Well, what about adultery? If we're we're allowed to divorce for adultery, okay, yes, for the hardness of your hearts, but where did Jesus go? He went back to Genesis. That doesn't give room for that. Why? Because grace is the trump card, not divorce. Do I have proof? Do I have any validity that that's true? Yes, I do. Very rarely do you see a man and a woman who are married who commit adultery stay together. I have witnessed it. Grace is the trump card. 
there's, there's one couple in particular that I'm thinking of who is, has been together now for 15 years after infidelity and their marriage is stronger now than it ever was and, and trust was majorly, majorly wounded and it took years and years and years and counseling upon counseling and pastoral visits and pastoral care but that's, the, that's what the church is for. Grace is the trump card, friends, not divorce. Grace is always the trump card. But that doesn't mean there aren't very legitimate reasons to divorce. And the Bible says so. Because at some point, when you fail to be faithful to that commitment for life, you do damage to the image of God. But there are boundaries to that, aren't there? It's not because you're not happy anymore. It's not because you can find fulfillment somewhere else. Thirdly, no one should intrude on another person's marriage. No one should intrude on another person's marriage. What God has put together, let no one separate, even the husband and wife. Let not, no one should intrude in another person's marriage. And I'm making the assumption that you realize that this is looking at those outside of marriage primarily, but it does still speak to us. Husbands and wives, you need to work hard. You know, honestly, there are, my wife is wonderful. There are days that I don't like her. There are more days that she doesn't like me but she loves me and we are committed for life regardless of the circumstance and situation. Regardless. Anything you do that takes away from the closeness and intimacy that a husband and wife are meant to share with each other breaks the seventh commandment. How about flirtatious behavior? You know, there are some men and women out there that don't even know they're flirts. They don't even know that they're flirtatious. But flirtatious behavior, it, it, it intrudes. It intrudes in a person's marriage. How about immodesty? Well, I know your women are going, oh, here we go again. God, the immodesty talk. You know, I was a camp director for 10 years, and every year the guys would come to me and say, you need to tell those girls to stop wearing short, short shorts and really low-cut tank tops. And I said to them, you need to stop looking. But here's the truth. There are some guys that do stupid things with their clothing. I, I have to say, though, that that's not sexually attractive, and I hope that you ladies out there don't find it attractive. <laughs> but see, that's not the way women were made. You weren't made to be physically attracted first. Men were. It's no wonder that when God brought Eve to Adam, he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He, he didn't sit down with Eve and say, let me understand a little bit more about who you are. Let, let, me, let me understand how you tick. No, he went, whoa. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He desires a good thing in the right context, isn't it? Desire is a great thing in the, in the right context. Desire in the wrong context is bad. 
Bad, bad, bad. Don't, parents, don't tell your kids that they should avoid sex because it's bad. No, tell them they should avoid it because it's best when they're married. I grew up in a family that said, bad, 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 bad. And you know what? It made me want to do it more. But what if I had gotten the perspective that it was beautiful? What if I had gotten the perspective that it was meant to unite? Because in reality, as a promiscuous teenager, every relationship I was involved with was torn apart. Every relationship I had where that was in, sexual activity was involved was torn apart, emotionally, spiritually. It wasn't meant, it's meant to unite. And it's meant to unite in the context of marriage. What about emotional intimacy? Emotional intimacy is an intruder in another person's marriage. It may be an intruder in your marriage. What about displaced intimacy? And here's what happens. Invariably what happens is that guys, they invest so much in their work that that becomes their identity. And when the husband's not around, where's the wife to turn? So she turns to kids or she turns to food, or she turns to soap operas, or she turns to so many other things. That's displaced intimacy. And what happens is the kids leave. And then you come to my office because you don't know each other anymore. Well, I wonder why that happened. I've always told my kids, and my daughter's sitting right there, she can testify it. Your mother and I are the priority relationship, not you. Not Eli, not Jordan. We are the priority relationship. So stop being a selfish little intimacy sucker and stay in your place. <clears throat> but that's hard, isn't it? Because the ki- your kids want all your attention. And they want it at the most inopportune times. God sees marriage as something sacred and sex to be preserved within the confines of that relationship. You know, I think it's one of the reasons that our society is so obsessed with it. There's something, there's something very good and transcendent about a Christian husband and wife who love each other the way God has called us to love each other. There's something, there's something sacred about that, and that's the way it was designed. But our society is grasping for anything sacred, and the reality is they're settling for sex. We can't settle for just sex. There is more to our life than just sex. People are looking for love. They're looking to be known. Isn't it interesting that when you read the Old Testament in the King James Version, what does it say? And Adam knew his wife and they conceived. And over and over again in in many of the genealogies, so-and-so knew his wife, so-and-so knew. There's something about being known, isn't there? Well, we can only know each other so far. There's a knowing that is better than sex. There's a knowing that is better than anything we'll get this side of heaven. There's there's being known by Jesus. That intimate knowing. See, what we experience this side of heaven is, is temporary. We have that kind of knowing forever in heaven. To be known deeply and intimately. And see, that to me is a remedy for adultery. How can I go so deep with Jesus Christ that even my sexuality is an expression of my satisfaction in him? Are you satisfied with Jesus? 
Some of you will say yes, but I can look at your life and see that you're not because you're chasing so many counterfeits and I'm chasing so many counterfeits. I'm chasing money, sex, and drugs. They're all counterfeits. They're never gonna last. Are you deeply satisfied with Jesus? And if you're not deeply satisfied with Jesus, now is the perfect time to start and it starts with a relationship with him. It starts with saying, Lord, I have made a mess of my life and especially in this, in this area of my sexuality. And I surrender. Forgive me. And, and, and show me. Show me this, this joy that I can only find in you. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11 says, says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, not half joy, not three quarters joy, fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You're not gonna experience pleasures this side of heaven like you're gonna experience in heaven. You are not. But if you don't know Jesus, you're not gonna be there to experience them. You will experience something Vastly different if you don't know Jesus. We find this deep love and satisfaction through repentance and faith. In repentance, you turn away from all sin and turn toward him. What does this turning away look like? Well, if you're tempted, maybe you need to give up your favorite TV show. Maybe you need to stop going to that place on the internet, certain sites. Maybe you need to get a different job if you have a a man or a woman at your work who's a temptation to you. But as you turn away, I want you to turn towards Jesus. Why, Why Jesus? Wait a minute, Jesus wasn't married. He doesn't understand. He doesn't understand the temptations I deal with. Really? Scripture wouldn't say that he was tempted in every way like us, yet, was without sin. He understands. He was a red-blooded man. He was 100% male. And he had a number of women in his entourage. But he was never tempted. I'm sorry, he he never gave in to that temptation. We need to run to him. We need to allow him to surround us with his loving arms and extend his forgiveness and grace to us. But then we need to hear him say, go and sin no more. Because he often said that. Go and sin no more. Make a different choice. But wait a minute, I'm addicted to it. No, you're not. It's a choice. Yes, there are some things that happen in your brain when you subject yourself to those things over and over and over and over again. But the same thing happens to food. The same thing happens to video games. That's the way God made our brains. But we can starve that and eventually not get so anesthetized to sin that we can say no. We can turn from it and run to Jesus. So maybe you need to do business with God today. Maybe you need to have hard conversations with your spouse. Whatever the case may be, don't work through these issues of infidelity without the care of the church. Don't try to do it by yourself. Get, get some men around you, women. Get some women around you who are gonna give you some godly advice. But goodness gracious, let's deal with it as a family because it is a family issue. 
Let's begin the hard work of restoring the metaphor of Christ's love for his church through our marriages, first and foremost. And then how we uphold marriages if we're not married. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.